Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Today we are bringing to a close the section in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 that focus on his authority. And as Jacob alluded to, it's really focusing on uh, the response to Jesus, the response to his authority and these acts are bringing about. And that's where we're aiming. So the title of our sermon today is Responding to Jesus. Responding to Jesus, Matthew chapter 9. Uh, segueing into our passage, you might have seen the headlines this week. Uh, one of Twitter's most prominent users and biggest critics, Elon Musk, dropped more than $2.5 billion to buy 9.2% stake in Twitter. So this makes him its single largest shareholder. Yeah, just a mere two and a half billion dollars. What's that to you when you're the richest man in the world, right? You can just buy into the company you want to be a part of. In response to this, Twitter announced that they were making Musk a member of its board. And in response to that, Musk tweeted that he would be working hard with the board to make significant improvements to Twitter in the months to come. Now, this is just an example, latest example, of how Musk, Elon Musk, asks acts as a disruptor. In the business world, a disruptor is someone who introduces radical change into an industry. And so Musk has done this again and again. He did it in the financial sector when he normalized secure online paying through his company PayPal. Then his company SpaceX challenged the notion that private space exploration is impossible. Then Tesla modernized how we think about electric vehicles. So Musk is just well known for how he disrupts industries. He's probably the best, best known disruptor of our day. He's good at it. But I read our passage this week, and I was thinking and meditating on it. I was just thinking about Musk doing this, and I was thinking, it's so big, so many headlines in our day, but so little in comparison to how Jesus has come in and disrupted history disrupted the world. He changed everything. And that's what really Matthew is bringing into focus in the passages we're looking at today, that the way Jesus came in and, and, and the conclusions he would force us to draw upon him really disrupts everything as he forces you to make a decision about himself. So we're going to look at two passages this, this morning. One is one we skipped a couple weeks ago. We're going to look at verses 14 through 17. And then we'll skip down to where we off, left off last week, verses 27 through 34. And I, I think really they go together well. So I'll invite you to follow along now as I read God's holy and authoritative word to us. Matthew chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we... And the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. Now skip with me, if you will, down to verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us. 
son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Well, may the Lord now bless both the preaching and the believing of his word. So, as I pointed out last week, Matthew is, he's painting a portrait of Jesus for us. He's giving us these different profile shots of Jesus. He's led by the Holy Spirit in doing this. And what he has been focusing on in each of these shots is Jesus' authority. And so we want to look at how the portrait continues today. And we're going to see a few aspects of Jesus here. Three, actually. The disruptor, the deliverer, and the divider. So we begin with Jesus the disruptor. This is what we see in verses 14 through 17. So in verse 14 we read, Then the disciples of John came to him. Now these are disciples of John the Baptist. That's John the Baptizer. He wasn't actually a part of the Baptist denomination, which did not exist back then. But he was John the Baptizer. And you remember John had a great following, a great many number of disciples. But we know from chapter 4 that John is in prison. And so he had urged his disciples towards Jesus. He had said, behold, the Lamb of God. And some followed Jesus. Some did not. Here we have some that came to Jesus, and they couldn't figure out what to do with him. They asked him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, this is interesting because John did not align himself with the Pharisees in any way. And yet here's some of his disciples are aligning themselves with the Pharisees. They're saying, we're like the Pharisees in this. So this tells us something about these disciples and something about how they understood religion, Judaism. Now, the Pharisees, we know, thought that pious Jews should fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Now, the Old Testament only prescribes that you had to fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That was the only fast prescribed in the Old Testament. But Jews have built up this whole system, this whole ritual system, where they said a pious Jew, a really faithful God-honoring Jew, is going to fast twice a week. And that's what these disciples of John apparently did. They fasted twice a week. And those, they're saying, why don't you do what we do? And this tells us really how they understood religion. That it wasn't about the person. It wasn't about the relationship with God. But it was about the practice. It was about what you do that's right or wrong. It was the practice of piety that really they thought was the heart of religion. And, 
and it's easy to bash on them for this, but we can do the exact same thing, right? It can be about us going to church or us reading our Bibles. or us. It's all about just if we're being a good person. Boys and girls, just, if I can talk to the children that are still in the room here for a minute. Yes, you. To talk to you kids for a minute. You, know, you grew up in this church. Many of you did. You were raised from this tall hearing about Jesus, right? I know your parents. When you were still in your mom and dad's womb, Many of your parents were telling, were whispering into the belly, believe in Jesus. Believe. John the Baptist believed. You can jump in the belly and believe too. Your whole life, all you've known are parents and a good church that has said believe in Jesus. And we want you to, but the problem is, is you could grow up thinking that it's about going to church and reading your Bible and doing things and not first about being in relationship with Jesus. Being like you are with your friends, like you love to hang out with them and you love to be with them. That's what it's supposed to be about with Jesus. Just that same kind of relationship. And that's what Jesus tells us right here in verse 15. This is his reason why you shouldn't be fasting. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as, as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus saying, what in the world? I mean. Who goes to a wedding saying, well, I can't partake of the party here because I'm fasting. I can't join your celebration. I'm too busy fasting. In fact, back in those days, um, if you had a wedding going on, if you were, all religious rituals were kind of on hold. No one fasted during them because it was a wedding. You didn't do that stuff. You partied, you celebrated. And Jesus is saying, why would my disciples fast? The bridegroom is here. And so in this, Jesus is alluding back to Old Testament prophecies uh, where God alluded to himself. God called himself the groom and he called his people the bride. So uh, an example, Hosea chapter two, we read this. This is God speaking. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So God's promise has always been that he would be like this groom pursuing his people, that he would be this lover who is going after those that he wants to be in a love relationship with. And Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. I'm here now. I'm finally with you. You think my, my disciples are going to fast now? Now's not the time for fasting. Now's the time for feasting. So in verses 16 and 17, then Jesus uses two more illustrations to advance his point. He says, you, you don't put an unshrunk patch of, of fabric on a garment that's tearing because that'll just make the tear worse. And, and you don't put new wine into old wineskins because the containers can't hold that new and expanding wine. And Jesus' point is, is listen, I'm bringing something completely new here. I'm trying to show you it's not about form and function. It's not about practice and piety in that way. It's about relationship with me, with God. Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the new garment. Jesus is the new wine. He's informing them that he can't be integrated into the, the practices and piety of Judaism as they understood it. He's in undermining all that. In fact, he's trying to say, like, listen, the only way you can have a relationship with God is through me. 
This is what Jesus is really saying. You can't patch a little bit of gospel onto your piety. You can't patch a little bit of Jesus onto you being a good person. You can't say you believe in Jesus while you're still relying on your performance to have a good relationship with God. Because the bridegroom has come. God is with us. Jesus is saying this is the time for celebration and feasting. However, this is so like Jesus. He takes this moment, he takes this opportunity, and you could almost wonder if he's, he's hearing them, he's engaging them, but he kind of looks off for a second. Because he goes off here, off, off, off script as it were. He leaves the celebration metaphor for a minute. He says, the days, this is verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. That verb, taken away, doesn't translate well into the English. It's actually a violent word. It means a violent and unwelcome removal. It means being dragged away from someone or something. And friends, this is Jesus' first real allusion here in the Gospels to some kind of violent end that he's going to face. One day the bridegroom is going to be forcibly and violently removed from the wedding celebration that is underway. And this is the first of multiple references in Matthew's Gospel to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. This one particularly taken from verse 8 verbatim. He says, Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away, same phrase, taken away, stricken for the transgression of my people. So one day the bridegroom, Jesus is saying, will be taken away from them. Jesus is saying, I understand exactly why I came. Yes, I'm the bridegroom. Yes, I'm the garment. Yes, I'm the new wine. I came to bring something completely new, forgiveness of sin, full and free, but that forgiveness is not free for me. That forgiveness is going to cost me everything. One day Jesus will be taken away. He'll be taken away forcibly, violently beaten, crucified, which we are about to to honor and respect in the week to come so that sinners like you and me can be forgiven of our sins and Jesus will die so that we can be forgiven so that then we can join with him in a marriage celebration that will never end the marriage supper of the lamb. What lamb? The lamb that was slain. The lamb of God slain for us, the groom who gave his life for his bride. So what's the word for us in all this? The word for us is this. If you are not a Christian and you are here today, the word to you in this is to abandon all your attempts at trying to be a good enough person or a religious enough person to earn your way into heaven or to somehow make yourself in an okay relationship with God or to somehow to get God to bless you. Jesus is saying it does not work that way. Jesus came because it can never work that way, but he gave his life for you so that he could show you how much he loves you. And all you need to believe is is in him. Trust in his performance. Trust in his goodness. 
Don't trust in yourself. And for my Christian friends here today, here's the question I think this passage provokes for you. Do you know the celebratory joy of your salvation? It's supposed to be like a wedding feast. Do you know the joy of your salvation? Because if you don't, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm going to lift the hood and tell you the problem underneath. Somewhere in your soul, you are relying more on your performance than you are on Jesus. You're trusting more in the forms and the functions and the practices you do and you trying to be a good person or a good Christian. You're relying on more of that than you are of Jesus. Listen, every Christian every day is tempted in this way. We are all tempted in this way. We are influenced by indwelling sin, particularly in the form of pride. There is temptation every day to transfer the basis of our relationship with God, our basis of our relationship of, with God and our forgiveness from God and our acceptance with God. We transfer the, the base of that from the bridegroom over to us in our performance. It, it's like going to a wedding, right? I, hopefully you've never been to a wedding where, where the bride, <laughs> you hear about these stories. Maybe they're on TV. They do these reality shows about Bridezilla or something like that. Isn't that a show? Yes. Where it's all about her. What a sad start to a marriage. And yet, how many Christians live like that? Where it's all about me. Oh yeah, I'm getting married. Yeah, yeah, he makes a nice adornment. The greatest parts about marriage, I get a front row seat, I'm like right here. The greatest moment in a marriage for me personally, is when I'm standing right up there and the grooms are here and that door opens and he sees her and he just, he either breaks out in the biggest smile or he breaks down in tears. And she does the same, and it's not because anybody's thinking about themselves, but because they're thinking about the other person. And friends, that's where the joy of your salvation is. It's not in you. It's in the other one, Jesus. So fix your eyes on Jesus. That is the joy of our salvation. All right, so that's Jesus, the disruptor. He disrupts the status quo, the attempts we all make to base our relationship with God on our performance. And he says, no, 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 it's about me. But then we turn now to number two, point number two, Jesus, the deliverer. So we're skipping down to verses 27 through 30, but I, I want to invite you to look with me at verse 26 here to kind of springboard off this one. This is uh, right after the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. So this has just happened. He's raised her from the dead. And then we read in verse 26. And the report of this went throughout or went through all that district. Now that's just what we'd expect to read when a little 12-year-old girl is raised from the dead and returned to her, her doting father. That, that's going to make the headlines. That's going to make the rounds. People are going to find out about this. People are learning about what Jesus is doing. The whole district is finding out about this. The news is spreading about his miracle working. But 
The news that's not spreading is the true identity of Jesus. They're learning about his wonder-working power, but they're not really figuring out who he is. Right? I mean, they know his name, it's Jesus. They know he's from, Jesus of Nazareth. But they're not really seeing who Jesus is. So, cue to blind men who do see who he is. Verse 27, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, notice first the cry of these two blind men. This is very important. Matthew tells us they were following Jesus. So they are apparently in the crowd. They're shoving their way along. They're trying to stay with the group in the midst of their blindness. They're pushing, they're pressing. And all the while, in the continuous sense, they are crying out. They are crying out. This means that they are yelling. They are screaming. They are shouting. So there is passion involved here. These are two needy men desperate in their blindness, crying, pleading, begging Jesus, have mercy on us. Have mercy. What is mercy? So mercy is compassion for those in distress. Mercy is given from one of strength to one in weakness. Mercy is given from one of provision to one in need. Mercy is given from one who has to one who has not. And these men, they're crying out, mercy. We need mercy. And maybe you're here today and you're feeling like, yeah, I could use some of that too. (laughs) I need a little compassion. I need a little help. I need a little provision here, Jesus. I need some mercy. And if that's you, these two blind men are actually sure and steady guides to the one person who can give you the mercy that you need. They teach you to cry out, Son of David. Son of David. Now, this is the first time, this is the first time in Matthew's gospel when someone other than Matthew or other than the demons, who super actually knew who Jesus was. This is the first time in Matthew's Gospel when someone in the midst of Jesus' ministry ascribes to Jesus a messianic title. So this is, this is Matthew putting up a flag here. These guys, they know who Jesus is. All right, now let's be reminded of the fact that God had first promised a Messiah back in Genesis chapter 3, right, to Eve, that one would come from her, the offspring of her, literally the seed of a woman who would bruise the head of Satan. So, meaning this would be a man. God would send a human to save humanity, and he'd be born of a woman. Then, in Genesis chapter 22, God kind of narrowed the pool down to someone from the seed of Abraham. And then, in chapter 49 of Genesis, God narrowed, the, the seed, or the, narrowed it down even a little more to not just any of Abraham's seed, but from the line of Judah, the seed of Judah. And then, fast forward a great many years, God promised to King David, who was from the line of Judah, that he would narrow it down and it would come from the line of David. 
So this is the great messianic promise given to David. We find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God says to him, verses 12 through 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, Jews came to learn, came to understand, this pointed beyond any of David's direct children. This went beyond Solomon or any others. This pointed to a forever king, a coming king, a coming Messiah, one from David, but greater than David. And so by Jesus' day, every Jew understood this. This was a messianic title. Now, let me prove this to you. Let me point this out to you. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Look here with me for a minute. So, this is, so, this is fun. This is Palm Sunday. So how appropriate that we look at this passage today uh, because, it, because it's about Palm Sunday and this is Palm Sunday. So this is just perfect how the Lord works these things together, okay? So the multitudes are hailing Jesus. They are praising him. They're throwing palm branches before him. And then look at what they cry in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. All right, so here we have this crowd, this great crowd of Jews, fickle though they may be, because they'll turn on Jesus shortly, but nonetheless, they announce him as one who comes in the Lord's name. So this is God's man, God's representative. Hosanna means to save us now. And then what's the title they give him? Son of David. Messianic title. Now, okay, keep that. Flip over to chapter 22. Chapter 22. At the end of this chapter, there's a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders in those days. And in verse 42, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answered him, the son of David. So I'm, what I'm trying to show you, you can turn back to chapter 9. What I'm trying to show you here is that the Jews, the crowds, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, everyone understood that son of David was a messianic title. And so here come these blind men crying out, have mercy on us, son of David, Messiah, rightful king, awaited savior, promised one. Now, the question is, how did these blind men figure it out? How did they see what other people couldn't see? I am going to take a guess that it wasn't just the works of Jesus' power. It wasn't just his powerful works that they were looking at. But it was that combined with the messianic promises. Because I'm guessing they held this particular Isaiah, or messianic promise close to their heart. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. 
then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. They had to have had that memorized. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. We're going to see that in just a minute. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now that's the one we can see in a minute. Jesus was, this is the point, Jesus was doing all this and more. He was raising people from the dead. So it was becoming apparent to any who had eyes to see of faith that this was the deliverer. The son of David. Oh, man. Can you imagine what those guys thought? I think we're in the presence of the Savior. The Son of God. The King. And so I love this. They were following him through the crowd. Verse 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came in. <laughs> they said, man, we're, we're so convinced of this guy, we're going right in there because we've got a question to ask. It's about having mercy on us. And Jesus said to them, now get this, folks. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Now that word able there means strong enough to do this or powerful enough to do this. Jesus is saying, do you believe I really got the power to do this? You're not holding, you're not holding out for me to be some kind of general king who's going to overthrow the army. You, have, you believe I have the power to do what you are asking me, the miraculous? So here's, I think, a valuable lesson on prayer we need to note. This is something we need, to, we need to really understand about prayer. Do you... Here, don't ask for things you don't believe God isn't able to do. And I think that means something more than, yeah, of course He can do it. But I think He would look you in the eyes and say, but do you believe I am able to? Are you really banking on that? I think the Lord really wants us to, to press into this very point. I was impressed upon it, or pressed on as I read this, but then also I've been reading a biography of George Mueller, who was a great man of prayer. And just the other night, I read about a time when he was traversing the Atlantic. Uh, he lived in England, and he was sailing to America for the first time. This is on one of those great passenger ships. And a few days out from port, they ran into this incredibly dense fog that slowed them down tremendously. And this is a powerful example of, of prayer and the faith that Mueller lived with. And I want to share it with you from, this is how the captain of that ship explained what happened. He said, I had been on that bridge for 22 hours and never left it because of the fog, right? And he says, I was all of a sudden startled by someone tapping me on the shoulder. It was George Mueller. <laughs> now get Mueller's personality a little bit here. He said, Captain, he said, I have come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> it is impossible, I said. Mueller replied, I have never broken an engagement in 57 years. 
I told him, I would willingly help you, but how can I? I am helpless. He said, Mueller, let us go down to the chart room and pray. Captain said, I looked at this man and thought to myself, what lunatic asylum could he have come from? I have never heard such a thing. Mr. Mueller, I said, this is the captain, do you know how dense this fog is? No, he replied. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. <laughs> Mueller was cut from a different cloth, right? But we need this, right? Because if you attach the new cloth to the old garment, it tears. And Mueller got something about the God that he served. He then went down on his knees and prayed one of the most simple prayers. I thought to myself, that would suit a children's class where the children were not more than eight or nine years of age. The burden of his prayer was something like this. Oh Lord, if it is consistent with thy will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you made for me in Quebec for Saturday. I believe it is your will. When he finished, this is my favorite part, I was going to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to. First, he said, you do not believe God will do it. And second, I believe he has done it already and there is no need whatsoever for you to pray. I looked at him and George Mueller said this, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years and there has never been a single day that I have failed to gain an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door and you will find the fog is gone. I got up, and the fog was gone. And on Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec. This was my warning in the first service, I'll give it to you too. Don't qualify that story. Because Mueller's just banking on the same promises from Jesus that you and I have. Ask. Friends, the prayer of faith doesn't just asks, it asks and then it believes God is able to do it. So, let us examine our own prayer life. Is this how we petition God? Is this the character of intercession that we have? Do we really believe, like Mueller, that we have an audience with the king? Do we really believe like these blind men that we have an audience with the son of David? Yes, be submissive. Yes, be humble. He models this for us here, Mueller does. And yet be full of faith that God is able. So returning to our passage, Jesus asked the blind men, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they give him the simple, they give him a, a Sunday school, George Mueller-like kind of answer. Yes, Lord. Any child could say it, but they believed it. And then we're told, verse 29, he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. 
All right, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bear the faith of these two blind men and their untimely evangelism. We can hardly fault them. They were so excited, and they can, I mean, we can fault them, but you just are sympathizing. They must have just been so excited. They couldn't keep quiet, but bear their example of faith in mind as we turn to point number three here because we're going to consider another miracle story briefly, but Matthew is really starting to focus our attention here on how people are responding to Jesus. And so we see... Point number three, Jesus the divider. I mean, he's the divider of people. He divides people up in the way that they respond to him. And so look again with me at verses 32 through 34. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Here Matthew's bringing into focus the way people divide over Jesus. Some believe in him, others respect him, but from a distance, and then still others flat out reject him. Jesus is a very polarizing person. Uh, he even says as much in just another chapter, chapter 10. He says, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I came to bring a sword. And he means by that not to bring war, but that he will bring a division between people who believe in him and people who don't. And he even goes on to say, you know, it'll be you know, daughter against mother and son against father and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Um, he'll divide even in families. You can't have an opinion about Jesus that's just kind of, yeah. You got to decide. It's that famous Lewis quote, right? He didn't leave us the option. He didn't intend to. You have to make a decision about Jesus. So let us examine ourselves on this point. Matthew focuses on three types of responses to Jesus' messianic authority. And so the first is the crowd respected Jesus. They marveled at what he's doing. They said, never was anything like this seen in Israel. So they're going back to Moses. They're going back to the you know, crusade in the promised land. They're going into the prophets and they're saying, great things, but never as much and as powerful as all this. And yet still, they kept their distance from him. They were the crowds, not the disciples. And this is a distinction that's going to be made from here on out in the book. In fact, if you look down at verse 36, in chapter 9, verse 36, you'll see, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. And then verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest. So the distinction is starting to get made here. The crowds respected Jesus, but from a safe distance. And that's how some of us relate to Jesus. It's how I related to him all the way up through into college when he finally saved me. I respected him, but keep your distance, Jesus. I like you doing things out there, over there. Maybe if you bless me, you're going to feed me. Sure, I'll come. All right, that's what the crowds were into. And that's how some of us relate to Jesus. We respect him, but we want him to keep his distance from our personal lives. And I think each of us here who confess Jesus... We slip right into the same mindset, don't we? We respect Jesus. In fact, we'll worship him in, in every area of life. He has all authority except in this one area or this one relationship. 
where we don't want to give him authority. The crowds respect him. The proud reject him. The proud rejected him. The Pharisees charged Jesus of casting out a demon by the prince of demons. We're going to skip that specific charge because Jesus is going to address it himself in chapter 12, so we'll look at it then. But the point not to miss is the arrogant rejection of Jesus by the religious here. They, they saw no need for him. And that's the same spirit of self-sufficiency that's prevalent today. Uh, for many, it, it's more implicit than explicit. Uh, they just don't see their need for Jesus. But that's an arrogant stance and ultimately a dangerous decision. Jesus warns, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. It's John 12, verse 28. So the only proper response to Jesus is to bow before this glorious king and gladly receive his mercy. The crowds respected Jesus, but from a distance. The proud rejected Jesus. That was ultimately dangerous. The believing revere Jesus. They worship him as king and trust in his mercy. They believe he is both able and willing. They shelter in his strength as they trust his heart, and they gladly renounce themselves and everything else to follow him. So in conclusion today, we're drawn to a point of decision. What do we make of Jesus? A British writer by the name of Haywood once said, the problem with humanity is this. We stand at the crossroads and all the signposts have fallen down. We stand at the crossroads. Which way do we go? Which route do we take? I don't know. All the signposts have fallen down. But not for Matthew. Matthew has carefully set the signpost up for us, and he calls us to make a choice, to take a path that follows Jesus, to be his disciple. Chapter 8 and 9 really is calling us to make this choice. You know, really, in the Sermon on the Mount, he laid out what the lifestyle of a disciple looks like. In chapters 8 and 9, he's shown us Jesus really is the king and authority. He, he has the power. But you'll notice that he hasn't really distinguished who his disciples are yet. We've only had one instance where he's called Matthew to follow him. But from here on, that distinction, as I said, becomes more and more clear. Those who are the crowd and those who really follow him as his disciples. Where are you at today? Are you going to follow the signpost? Because if Jesus has all authority... then he deserves all of us. And if he's also what these blind men saw, 
merciful. Then he deserves all our trust. So will we follow Jesus? Matthew has given us the signpost. The gate is narrow, the way is hard, but the way is life and life eternal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for inspiring Matthew to write this beautiful account, this powerful account, which just lead us signpost by signpost, by signpost by signpost, to the determination many of us make that Jesus Christ is the Lord. God, we pray for those in our midst or who are listening who do not yet know you as Lord and Savior. We pray that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts, that they might confess you and know you and know the joy of salvation. God, we pray for those of us who do know you. God, how quickly we forget how sweet you are to us and what a sweet bridegroom you are. Lord, I pray that you would return to us the joy of our salvation you and delighting in you. I pray that we would truly rest in your deliverance on our behalf through the giving of your own life. I pray that you would help us to know you and to make you known. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We invite you to stand now. So we respond to God's word preached by coming to commune with him at his table. If you are a Christian here with us today, whether you call this church your home or not, uh, we welcome you to this table for this is the Lord's Supper. Um, if you're here with us and you're not a Christian, if you're like, what in the world is he talking about with this table and this supper and all this, 